This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. Car break-ins, city staffing shortages, urban decay. The news about San Francisco can get pretty heavy these days. Wouldn't it be great to have a hopeful, positive story about the city? Well, last week, we got one. One with a bit of razzle-dazzle and glitter. The stud, an iconic LGBTQ bar in Soma that closed during the pandemic, announced that it was reopening. For nearly six decades, the bar had been a critical space for the queer community. It hosted events that allowed subcultures to flourish, including boundary-pushing drag performances by the late Hecklina. Like many other nightlife businesses in the city, the stud fell victim to the uncertainties of the pandemic and shut its doors in March 2020. But now, more than three years later, the bar is back. It will reopen in early 2024. Standing outside the stud's new location on Folsom Street last Tuesday, San Francisco city leaders gathered to celebrate the news. One of them was the chair of the city's Democratic Party, Honey Mahogany. We looked long and hard to find a place that was worthy of the stud's legacy. The stud is one of San Francisco's most iconic venues. It is almost 60 years old, and for those 60 years, it has been bringing art and culture and music and nightlife to the queer community here in the South of Market. Mahogany is also part of the 15-person collective that owns the stud. It's one of the many characteristics that make the bar unique. Today on Fit the Mission, what it took to bring the stud back to San Francisco. Chronicle arts and culture writer Tony Bravo shares why the bar is more than just a bar and why its return, especially in Soma, signals something hopeful. He'll also share why reviving queer nightlife is critical, not only for San Francisco's social life, but to preserve the city's revolutionary roots. Here's my conversation with Tony Bravo. Tony, the stud's presence in San Francisco dates back nearly 60 years. Tell me about its heyday. What was it like to hang out and party at the stud? Well, I have to say, I have not been a part of all nearly 60 years of the stud's history. <laughs> but the era that I've gotten to see in the new millennium has been, I think, really carrying on that legacy of being a place that was for queer people that didn't always feel like they belonged within sort of the more mainstream queer community and queer spaces that were in the Castro. By the time I started going to the stud, the legacy of Hecklina's event, which was known then as Tranny Shack and eventually became known as Mother, the legacy of T-Shack was really, I think, what colored it for most of us. It was a space of avant-garde performance. It was a space of weird unusual punk drag that pushed the boundaries of what the art form mm -hmm. could be. It was a space that had different theme parties, like goth nights, tributes to 
artists uh, like Susie and the Banshees, Bjork, that you might not always find in other spaces that were maybe a little bit more Britney or Kylie Minogue. And there was also just a funkiness to the place. Mm -hmm. You felt the history. You knew that generations of queer people had been through those doors, going all the way back to when it was founded as a country and Western bar. Hence the name, by the way. Mm. Now, the stud is the first collectively owned queer bar in the country. Tell me what does that mean and why is that important? Well, actually, the fact that the stud became collectively owned was the thing that saved it when it was on the brink of closure in 2016. The stud has a group of 15 collective owner operators who took over the bar in 2016 when a rent hike brought it on the brink of closure. They assumed ownership from Michael McElhenney and were able to keep it open up until the pandemic in 2020. What the collective essentially means is that they were able to keep it open through this shared ownership and also keep the collection of historic items together, which ranged from the actual bar fixtures themselves to historic flyers and the commemorative buttons that were mm. an important part of understanding the legacy of the stud. Mm. Essentially, collective ownership was a new way of approaching owning a queer space in an era when we were losing many queer spaces. Hmm. Now, Tony, when people think of queer culture in San Francisco, for most people, the Castro comes to mind. But what makes the area in Soma or the leather and LGBTQ cultural district unique? Well, I think it's important that we remember that there isn't just one queer culture. It's not a homogenous community. Mm -hmm. The Castro, I think, by many has been seen as a little bit more mainstream. Certainly, there have been feelings over the years that the Castro is for primarily more white, cisgendered, and affluent LGBTQ people. The Soma, on the other hand, was an area that always existed a little bit more on, let's say, the margins of the queer community. There was an emphasis on sexuality, on fetish culture, on spaces that were about the leather community. That's one of the reasons why we have things like Dory Alley and the Folsom Street Fair in that area. Soma also, I think to this day, gets to push the boundaries of what type of drag is there. Really, it got to be a little bit more experimental, a little bit more cutting edge. I've always looked at Soma as the LGBTQ neighborhood for people that maybe didn't want to fit into the mainstream. Now, as we know, Tony, San Francisco nightlife businesses took a really huge hit during the pandemic. What kinds of challenges did the stud face in 2020? Well, the stud actually made the decision to close their previous physical space at 9th and Harrison in March of 2020. They were already looking for a new permanent home because they had this rent increase. The decision to close the physical space allowed them not to accumulate debt so that they could one day reopen in better financial standing. I will point out, though, that the stud was not entirely gone from the consciousness of the city. During the pandemic, they, like many queer spaces, hosted online virtual drag events. Their merchandise has been one of the things that has helped them pay for things like storage, for keeping some of the licensing current. It's funny, as I knew the stud was coming back ahead of releasing the embargoed news, 
I saw a number of stud t-shirts just out in the community, in the city. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me just how deep the roots of the stud are in San Francisco, that even not having a physical space for uh, coming up on four years this March, it didn't entirely erase it in the city's consciousness. Yeah. So when the news came out that the stud was going to have to close in 2020, how did the community react? There was an outpouring of grief. This was a time where there was a lot of grief, if you remember March of 2020. I think there was a lot of fear about whether or not the bar could come back, as they had stated. But also in general, what was the condition of the LGBTQ community going to be when the pandemic was eventually over? The death of the gayborhood has been a topic in the community probably since the 1990s at this point, Mm -hmm. maybe even farther, going back to the worst days of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s. The loss of the stud, especially after the loss of the last lesbian bar in San Francisco, the Lexington Club in 2015, I think was seen as the potential of losing yet another one of the most important links to our queer history here, not just in San Francisco, but uh, the stud is a space that has a reputation that goes far beyond the Bay Area. So you mentioned the Lexington Club. What other LGBTQ institutions has San Francisco seen closed down in recent years? This year, I think we have to note that Harvey's, uh, in the heart of the Castro District, which had been there for 27 years closed quite suddenly, although they were able to have a sort of drag memorial wake. Harvey's is named for Harvey Milk. It was a space that also had a great deal of memorabilia related to Harvey Milk. So to lose a space that really tried to tie itself into the history of the Castro, I think, was was a tremendous loss for many people. I think there's also concern about the future of the Castro Theater itself. I think there continue to be concerns over how queer that space will be Mm -hmm. in spite of uh, Another Planet saying that they have plans to continue to do certain types of queer programming there. I think in general, there's always been anxiety about the Castro and Soma and other LGBTQ neighborhoods losing the queer cultural aspects to gentrification. And um, The stud coming back seems like one of the rare stories that has a happy ending and kind of a popular resolution. Right. It's rare that these spaces return from the dead. Why are queer nightlife venues so integral to the community beyond just having a space to socialize? And what kind of political hurdles did the stud have to overcome in order to return? Chronicle arts and culture writer Tony Bravo shares after a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tony Bravo, certainly San Francisco residents anywhere could attest to why nightlife is important for the city's vitality. But why is it particularly important for queer culture and identity? How does it shape the community? Well, you know, quite simply, those were the spaces where we were allowed to exist when we could not exist in mainstream society. 
the Stonewall riots. In fact, uh, the, the event that is seen as one of the pivotal moments of starting the LGBTQ rights movement. Uh, that was a queer bar in uh, New York City. A nightlife space essentially sparked our revolution. Mm. It's not only a place where our culture is made, music, drag culture, other kinds of entertainment. It's a space where some of our political consciousnesses are are formed. The nightlife community has been important not only in sparking kind of the mainstream queer rights movement, but also in uh, movements like uh, harm reduction for drug users. That has been a, a movement that has been very significant in LGBTQ nightlife spaces here in San Francisco, especially. It's been a space that has allowed fundraising and philanthropy for political causes, for people dealing with AIDS and HIV in the worst days of that epidemic. It's also a space that now is more under threat than ever in some states, with many state legislatures specifically targeting gay identity, things like drag performance. The death of the gayborhood has been an issue that we have long struggled with, but it feels like in 2023, the urgency of preserving those spaces is being raised now more than ever because we've seen these legislative threats. Right. And and that's what's making this stud reopening such happy and positive good news. And we love to hear it. Tell me about how this effort was made possible. I understand there was a lot of community and political will in the city to see this happen. Well, there was certainly the will of the people that love the stud for it to come back. Among those people, credit is given to the three openly gay members of the Board of Supervisors. That would be District 8 Supervisor Raphael Mandelman, District 4 Supervisor Joel Engardio, and District 6 Supervisor Matt Dorsey. That's actually the district in which the stud is located. I don't think without that political support that the stud would have had as easy a time of coming back, and that is not to say that it has been easy. They actually needed to engage these supervisors to get the zoning changed on this space that had most recently been a nightlife venue in order to get it to remain a nightlife venue because of how it was zoned. That is one of the particular challenges that I think come with opening a new nightlife space in San Francisco at mm. this point mm-hmm. is the zoning and the, the neighborhoods are not as hospitable as they were when many of the nightlife institutions were initially established. So now the stud will reopen on Folsom Street, which is just three blocks away from its previous location. Will it look and feel the same as before in this brand new shiny space? Well, I don't think that any space can be created identically, but the intent of those collective members is to bring all of the history back that they're able to. That includes bar fixtures, that includes some of these massive Victorian saloon-like cabinets that many of us remember, the colored glass pendants that hung over the bar, flyers, posters from events over the years, all of the bric-a-brac and kitsch that I think many of us loved. It will have much of the same ambience from what I'm hearing. And their intention is really to preserve and promote as much of that history as they can. So there's a lot of things here that work to the studs' favor. A lot of political pool from politicians who were helping rezone it, whatever else it needed. 
there was also this crowdfunding goal of $500,000. Tell me more about that. Residents in the community are really wanting to chip in to see this place stay afloat. Well, quite simply, the crowdfunding is necessary for them to do the renovations that they need to do and also to deal with all the costs that go into not opening a business, but even reopening a business. That includes dealing with the transfer or the entirely new licensing and permits that are going to be needed for that space. I actually think half a million dollars is a pretty modest goal, given what we know about delays in construction and red tape in San Francisco. Already, I believe, on the first day, something like $25,000 was raised within the community when the Chronicle announced uh, the reopening and this crowdfunding campaign. I wouldn't be surprised if it meets it and even surpasses it based on the amount of goodwill I'm hearing in the community. Mm -hmm. And what do you think this all sort of points to when it comes to keeping legacy queer business spaces alive in San Francisco? I mean, the stud had a lot of help, but certainly not all of them are going to have the same leverage. Well, I think that uh, thinking outside of the way businesses have normally been run is essential. I think that's part of why the collective was formed, because they saw the difficulties in owning and operating a queer space in the way that uh, it had been done previously with sort of private ownership. I think the immediate outpouring that we got when the story came out shows how important this space is and that I think San Franciscans have have lost a lot in recent years, especially people in the LGBT community who were Mm -hmm. losing spaces long before the pandemic. When a success story like this can happen, I feel like the community gets behind it. And I think that because of all of the losses, we have come to know how special these spaces are. Mm -hmm. The idea that a space can carry on part of what people have always loved about it, while perhaps continuing to innovate in other ways, I think is very San Francisco. I think it's the best of what we do here in the Bay Area. Mm -hmm. I hope that other businesses Mm -hmm. that we've lost might find ways of resurrecting like this. Certainly, this has been a long planned resurrection and kind of a hibernation more than a official closure. So it's a special situation, but it gives me a lot of hope. Well, Tony Bravo, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Tony Bravo writes about arts and culture for The Chronicle. Find his story about The Stud and his other reporting online at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. This episode was edited by Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening.